It's just one thing that I would encourage a lot of young people, a lot of young professionals mm -hmm. to really think about the values mm -hmm. that make them and, and shape them. And then, you know, that little quiet voice yeah. that that is talking to us, trying to encourage us to pursue stuff or maybe to think about our lives in a different way. the Orchestrating Your Career podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca, Rebecca for short, and I'm a clarinetist who studied at the Eastman School of Music and then went to London to get my master's and PhD, both at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. Having shifted pathways in my own life, I love hearing about the varied careers musicians can have and how they got there. And that's precisely what we're exploring in this podcast. As I sit down with music graduates to chat about their unique musical journeys, hear their hard-earned wisdom, and learn about how they're orchestrating their own careers. For my inaugural episode, I am truly honored to chat with Stanford Thompson, a trumpet player who studied at the Curtis Institute of Music. Like so many, his goal while studying was to become principal trumpet player of a major orchestra. But his career turned out quite different. It's fascinating to see how Stan pivoted from a performance pathway to found an Elsie Stemma-inspired program called Play on Philly. After over 10 years serving as their executive director, he took another turn in his career to start up a new organization, Equity Arc. You'll hear more about those in the interview. Stan shares invaluable advice about listening to your own inner voice and giving back to the community around you. Finally, for fun, there's a rapid-fire Q&A at the end with some resources that you just may want to check out for yourself. You're actually listening to Stan playing right now under this intro, a piece called Trumpet Songs by Jennifer Higdon. Stay tuned till the end of the episode to hear some more of this performance. And now, let's get right into the interview. Hi Stan, and welcome to the Orchestrating Your Career podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. It's great to be in Philly and it's really great to be here at Curtis in this beautiful room and this is actually where you in fact studied, yes. which is cool, so we will definitely get to that in the interview. Sure. So we actually first met 10 years ago now, which is absolutely crazy to think about. A friend of mine was telling me about her experience shadowing you and just the amazing work that you're doing through your program Play on Philly. I just knew that I wanted to hear more about it, so she put us in touch. You kindly had lunch with me. You let me pick your brains and it's been great to see over the years updates about all the work that you're doing. So it will be great to dig deeper into your musical journey and all of the work that you do. But before that, I'd just like to go back to the very beginning and hear about how it all got started for you. And you actually come from quite a large family and a very musical household. So could you just share about how that came about, how your family got into music, and how you yourself came to play the trumpet? Sure. So thanks for having me. And yeah, of course. love to have this conversation. and. Um, actually be able to reflect on all these years mm -hmm. um, after leaving Curtis. I think I have a, there's a lot of trauma in this room, uh, you know, some moments when yes. maybe I didn't do my best, but yeah. lots of great memories. Yeah, both um, sides of the coin. <laughs> correct. Um, and uh, it's great to kind of think about where all of this started. Mm -hmm. So my parents are both retired music educators. Mm -hmm. My father is a saxophone player. Uh, he taught middle school band. My mother is a flute and piano player. She taught high school orchestra. And music was really important to both of them mm. from a very early age. Um, and I know that when they decided to settle in Atlanta and start a big family, um, that music was going to be a really big part of our household mm. growing up. Um, so they thought it was important for us to learn discipline and hard work, um, to be able to challenge ourselves, um, I'm pretty sure they also wanted an activity that we could all do together. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, from since I was a little tiny kid, I could remember folks coming over to the house for music lessons. Um, there was always music playing, someone practicing, mm -hmm. a recording on, music on in the car. Um, and seeing my older siblings take to music really inspired me, mm -hmm. um, especially my two older brothers. Um, that play bass and saxophone. Mm. And I was always too little to hang out with them, like at the <gasps> skating rink or something. 
but I was kind of old enough to play with them. So that wow. kind of was a big motivator of like, you know, can I stay good enough so that... Keep up with the big boys. Correct, <laughs> exactly. So, um, so that was really kind of my very early uh, connection to mm -hmm. music and very, very grateful that my parents didn't let me quit those couple of times I mm -hmm. wanted to when I was a little. Um, and it's great to talk about how that experience, I think, shaped the rest of my career. Yeah, yeah. And how, how many siblings? It was a seven, seven siblings you seven, had? Yeah. yeah. Five sisters, two brothers. Wow, uh, what a household. And yeah. you all did music. We all did music. Uh, half of us stuck with it professionally. Mm -hmm. uh, the other half, they're normal and they make <laughs> lots of money and they're very happy. So. And then can you talk about how sort of you got here to Curtis? So I know that Curtis is one of the most difficult schools to even get into. Um, and how did your experiences doing music growing up um, lead you to an institution like this? Yeah. So I studied with my father the first couple of years. Uh -huh. um, he knew enough to teach me how to form a good embouchure and make a good sound. Mm -hmm. um, and then I started studying with um, one of the faculty members at Georgia State University. Mm -hmm. um, and shortly after that, the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra developed a program called Talent Development, mm -hmm. um, where they sponsored 25 black and um, uh, Latinx uh, youth in their pursuits to try to get into some of the top music schools in the country. Um, so the program was a couple of years old uh, when I got into it. My brother, he got into the program pretty much in his first or second year. Oh, wow. Um, but through that program, I was able to study with the principal trumpet player of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and also go to summer camps um, at Interlochen, mm -hmm. um, get some you know better instruments and a couple of other instruments I needed. Um, so you know through that mentorship, um, that is really what I think prepared me. And then seeing my teacher, who his first job out of college was in the Philadelphia Orchestra. Mm -hmm. He talked a lot about Philly um, and, and the orchestra. Um, and then my uh, older brother went to Curtis as well. Mm, wow. So I was able to come up and visit him. Yeah. Um, and it was one of the trips where the Curtis Symphony was playing Mahler Five uh, with David Zidman on the podium. Yep. And in that moment, I was like, first of all, I think they sound better than the Atlanta Symphony. Yeah. And second of all, like, I really want to be with a group of motivated musicians like mm -hmm. this. So that was a big motivator, and that kind of started my wheels turning, lots of practice, a lot of support I had from home and through the Atlanta Symphony. Mm -hmm. um, and I found myself here competitive enough to get one of the spots. Amazing. Could you talk just a little bit more about, you say you put in a lot of hard work and I'm sure you did, like, can you maybe talk any more specifically about what that looked like? So, it, I will say, I mean, it was kind of grueling yeah. I mean, from the standpoint of, uh, first of all, I, I think realizing that at a place like Curtis, and the way it was explained to me, that at a place like Curtis, the teachers don't have enough time to fix technical problems. Mm. Um, so for a trumpet player, brass player, being able to articulate well and play the entire range of the instrument, um, to be able to play musically, um, for us to be able to transpose and play on different equipment like piccolo trumpets or C trumpets. Um, so a lot of that was part of kind of the training and I mean it was at least two to three hours every day. Mm -hmm and trying to balance that with my high school work and AP classes yeah. and youth orchestra yeah. and things like that. So it was a lot of focus and I think for you know a lot of teenagers that like to do a lot of stuff, sometimes it can be hard to think about like the work that we have to do when we're 14 mm -hmm. or 11, mm -hmm. um, let alone when we're 17 or 18, Yeah. Um, that go into um, what you need to do to get into school. Yeah. Um, so that was a, quite a bit to navigate and to think about, but I was thinking about long-term where I wanted to be professionally, mm -hmm. knowing that a place like Curtis would help me get there. Yeah. And if I put in the work early, yeah. then on the other end, which was going to be like in my early to mid-20s, mm -hmm. then hopefully things would be easier. Yeah. And do you feel like having your brother have 
had come here before. Did that really help you sort of get to know the Curtis environment or like sort of what it would take to get to that level? Yes, I mean it was all of the above. Yeah. Um, I mean it was so inspiring to see him getting the Curtis. Um, to me it was like I know I can do it, yeah. uh, if he can do it. I was like, I'm a better musician than he is anyway. Um, and, and also, to have somebody here hmm. that understood me, you know, where I came from, um, that we could talk privately about anything that I was processing, and I knew it would stay between us. Hmm. Um, because, you know, Curtis, at the time, had about 150 students. Hmm. Um, now it's probably about 165, 170, but um, a very small school, yeah. and everybody knows everybody's business, so yeah. it was great to be in a place where I was trying to figure myself out as a person, figure out the school, but I had someone trusted that really knew me and understood me, yeah. that could hear me in a different way. Yeah, and that's really incredible that your family had like two kids go to place like Curtis and I just feel like the environment that must have been fostered in your household to sort of be able to produce musicians at that level do you feel like that was normal for your area or the place that you grew up in or like how did it sort of compare well um definitely not normal yeah uh, for there and not necessarily Atlanta mm. um the difference there is that like there's no community music school in Atlanta there's mm. no conservatory yeah. uh, there um, and a lot of kind of the musical resources are housed like through the Atlanta Symphony mm -hmm. um, which sometimes can be a kind of a transit stop for a lot of musicians on their way to you know a bigger orchestra mm -hmm. um, so right. yeah. that was definitely different and then my little sister was runner-up we almost had three here at the same wow. time. Uh, she ended up at the Manhattan School of Music. Still amazing. Right, yep. Um, so we kind of, you know, always laughed that, you know, maybe there's something in the water we were drinking. Yeah, yeah. Or definitely Whatever something. your parents were feeding you, <laughs> yeah. they did well. Yeah, but certainly, you know, what our parents uh, kind of expected of us, the support they gave us. Yeah. Um, and especially the support of a program through the Atlanta Symphony was a huge help. Game changing. Yeah. So when you came to Curtis, did you have a sort of idea of your career pathway, like what your ultimate goal was, what you wanted to do when you came out with your degree? Yeah, I was a thousand percent focused on being a professional trumpet player, mm -hmm. you know, a principal player in a major American orchestra. Mm -hmm. um, and I did the math in my head. I knew all of the old retiring uh, or retirement age trumpet players oh, wow. that were out there and I had kind of my hit list and mm. um, so that was you know my first year and you know I had a very um, <laughs> engaged schedule I'd get up at 6 30 mm. I'd be at Curtis at 7 o'clock when it opened I'd practice at least an hour and a half before my first classes wow. you know I would pack a lunch so I could quickly eat lunch here and maybe get another hour in around lunchtime go to my afternoon classes or rehearsals and then here every evening from mm -hmm. roughly, you know, probably 7 o'clock to 11. Wow. Um, and I made a lot of progress my first year. Yeah. Very happy with it. But then I was thinking like, you know, who can I keep the steam up? Yeah. And I'll never forget taking a summer job at Interlochen mm. where I was just able to relax for a couple of weeks, um, you know, I mean, be in a really beautiful place, still be around a lot of great art making. Mm. Um, but that was kind of the, the beginning of like, cool, like all of this work that I'm doing and am I approaching maybe a stage of uh, burnout? Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, that's the elite kind of schedule. Like you're an elite athlete. This is your training schedule, your regimen, and it's incredibly intense. But I think that's the sort of environment that is fostered here and like the level of the students around you I would imagine as well. Oh yeah. And I remember when I came in, um, I mean other brass students were leaving early mm. um, to go take jobs in the Met Orchestra yeah. and the Colorado Symphony, you know, places like that. And now they're in Cleveland and Seattle and all these places. So, mm. you know, I remember that amount of pressure and then I remember my other colleagues like Yu Wong, who's student here at the same time I was, mm -hmm. and um, uh, Ray Chen and, and 
several, several others. Um, and just thinking like, you know, the level is insane, but if I practice really hard, I could be one of those yeah. that leave Curtis early yeah. to start playing professionally. So it's kind of a, you know, a very intense environment, but I also really thrived because finally mm. I was in a place where everybody around me worked really yeah. hard. It wasn't just like me and my siblings and a handful of other friends and our youth orchestra. So, you know, I really liked the environment, although it was, you know, pretty intense mm -hmm. and, um, and very easy for one to put a lot of pressure on themselves. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So throughout your years at Curtis, did you feel like that career goal or idea changed or evolved or shifted? For me, it shifted quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and as much as I was enjoying the musical challenges, I was also starting to see inequities um, as I got involved with more education work in mm -hmm. our schools here in Philly. Um, and I was looking at and or meeting music teachers that had, you know, budgets of about $100 to about $1,000 mm. that had to use that money for instrument purchases or repairs or buying supplies or sheet music. Um, and then I get back on the train and come to Rittenhouse Square where Curtis is and, you know, we, <laughs> we had every, like, imaginable resource that, yeah. you know, we needed to be successful. Um, and that just didn't sit right with me. Mm. Um, I also remember presentations where we would, would play at schools and one time this one little boy raised his hand and said, why the hell should I care about Beethoven? Wow. And he immediately got kicked out of the auditorium. Mm. We went on with our presentation, but I just remember that night going home really thinking, what would I tell that kid? Yeah. How would I ever convince them yeah. that what we had trained so many hours and so many years on was important to him. Yeah. And um, do you have an answer for that now? That maybe like uh, if you could go back and answer it? Well, if I could go back, I could, and, and if I were running Play on Philly at the yes. time, I'd say, hey, come hang out with, with us at Play on Philly. Mm. Do the work yourself. Um, you know, see the rewards of making music with your friends. Mm. And, and then I think you might change your mind yeah. on why that's important. But yeah, I knew at the time though that like we all know how difficult it is to put a basketball in a hoop. Yes. And especially when you have, you know, five other people trying to take the ball from you. Yeah. You've got maybe tens of thousands of people in the audience. Mm. I mean, the pressure. Um, and like we know how hard that is. So mm -hmm. we, we watch it and we know how difficult. But with music, um, you know, it's just with the young people having no reference yeah. to how rewarding it is, how difficult it is, um, it's hard for anybody to put that yeah. into the right perspective and, you know, enjoy it. You're right, yeah. And it's interesting because especially like when you hear the great musicians, they make it look so easy. And then a kid can pick up an instrument and it can be incredibly difficult and that can just be very discouraging and they might not realize it'll sound bad at first but there's like if i keep working at it and push through that the rewards are worth it but if they don't know that and they just think oh i'm just bad at it then they can just quit before they get started exactly yeah, yeah. so you were at curtis you felt this changing, evolving mindset towards your career and this discrepancy you were seeing around you. And then somehow you went from that and ended up at NEC and their um, Sistema Fellows program. So can you talk about how that came about and how you sort of took what you were feeling and yeah, learning and discovering and then ended up in this program? Sure. So I'll never forget once we were having a rehearsal, the Curtis Symphony, with Sir Simon Rattle. Mm. And we were playing pictures at an exhibition, but nice. you know, a third of the way through the rehearsal, he stops the orchestra and he says, y'all are playing like a bunch of robots. <gasps> you know, and it was like, it sounds really good, but there's no passion, there's no energy. Mm. And then he said, there's a group of kids in Venezuela that would outplay you. Ah. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, first of all, if the kids in Venezuela were so good, <laughs> they'd be here at Curtis, and they're not here, so they must not be that good. Um, 
And so I remember that introduction, mm. and you know, within months, Gustavo Dudamel was named the next music director of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Mm -hmm. And I remember, like, wait, I think this is the program that Simon Grado was talking about. Yeah. Um, and in the message that was delivered by their late founder, Dr. Jose Antonio Abreu, he made a very compelling case on how you know, classical music and really all kind of ensemble music making um, can be a very powerful tool to help the individual kid, to help their family um, think about mm -hmm. what you know their lives are like together because of the hard work of the kid playing music, and then how this could be the pride of neighborhoods and mm -hmm. communities. Um, and that message really stuck with me and it really encouraged me to think differently about what my purpose as a musician was and perhaps maybe even my purpose as a leader. Mm. So that happened. Um, I also had an opportunity to play in the Seoul Philharmonic in South Korea. Wow. And I knew firsthand after that stint that perhaps, you know, this is not for me. Mm. Why? Um, was there like a particular experience in that then? Yes, I mean, I remember I was playing with the orchestra at the end of December hmm. and their contracts renew on January 1st hmm. and everybody was on edge because they don't know year from year if they're going to be renewed for the upcoming year. Wow. Um, so I remember how tense everybody was hmm. um, and it was just not as warm, I think, as it could be. Hmm. But then I also had a chance to experience firsthand um, what it means to be perfect every rehearsal, every mm. concert. And we're trained so well as musicians that regardless of what's going on in our lives or how our, our face feels, that you still have to be able to play at a really high level. Mm -hmm. That is all understandable. But then I also um, thought about the language barriers, um, the lack of being able to be my true authentic self, knowing mm -hmm. I like to help people, I like to teach. Yeah. Um, I want like more people to come to love classical music. Mm -hmm. um, that, that probably was not the best place mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. And then it's made me question, is the, the medium of making music in an orchestra, is that really my vehicle yes. to express myself and what I you know, think. Mm. So at the same time all of this is going on, I played in the Soul Philharmonic. Uh, I was preparing for my graduate school auditions. Um, and I'll never forget leaving uh, the New England Conservatory, really thinking like, I don't think I'm supposed to be doing this. Mm. Um, two more years of what I've already been doing for the past four. Yeah. Um, I think this has taken me further away from this calling that I have. Um, and then the former uh, dean here at Curtis was the one that got me introduced to the Systema Fellows Program, mm -hmm. which was coming out of a partnership between the New England Conservatory mm -hmm. and El Sistema in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. So after uh, talking with the gentleman that uh, ran that program, Mark Churchill, it became very clear. Mm -hmm. This is a really, really great space to combine my passions and my skills and my, you know, love for music into something that is very powerful. Yeah. And I think just that sort of moment you're talking about after your NEC audition where it sort of crystallized to you, I don't think this is actually the pathway I want to go down. Because I think the fact that you're sort of giving yourself time to reflect on all of these things and and noticing these other developments and these other opportunities um, is really important. I feel like especially at high-level institutions like Curtis, it can be really hard to sort of break out of the mold and the pathway that you're sort of given at the beginning of your studies. Like this is the successful musician pathway that I will go down and I think it's easy to sort of put your head down and just be like, these are the steps I need to take and this is what I need to do. But instead, I feel like you're saying you were noticing these things within you that weren't quite jiving with that pathway and then, you know, just pivoting and saying, actually, I'll try going down a different pathway. Yeah. And uh, to add to all of that, that I think it's important 
for us to listen to ourselves. Yeah. And that was the part that I didn't do so well. Mm. Um, so as I share with you about like, you know, thinking about my upbringing and music, um, how so many people and things helped to support me. It was like, it was really clear to me. It wasn't just like my mom taking me to lessons and then taking me to youth orchestra. And I don't see what really happens in the background with making those opportunities happen. Um, and then also when I started at Curtis, and by the end of the first year, I'm tired. I'm like, I just want to go to Interpocket yeah. and do a really simple job and yeah. have my housing and taken care of and food provided. And I just want to go to concerts. I want to get out of the heat, mm. <laughs> you know. Mm. And then when, you know, the young man uh, spoke out in that uh, school presentation and I'm at home questioning myself, you mm. know. When I find myself enjoying sitting behind my computer desk in my apartment, working on a project and trying to raise a little bit of money, and I enjoy that more than like dragging myself to the practice room again. Yeah. You know, all of that stuff, um, certainly it was like, it took me <laughs> so much time to finally listen to myself. Mm. Um, and I try to do that much better these days. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just one thing that I would encourage a lot of young people, a lot of young professionals, mm -hmm. to really think about the values mm -hmm. that make them and, and shape them and the opportunities that are in front of us. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that little, you know, quiet voice yeah. that that is talking to us, trying to, you know, uh, encourage us to pursue stuff or maybe to think about our lives in a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's such valuable advice. And I think it's something that a lot of musicians really need to hear. Because I think, especially at the start of your training and your studies, or even when you're about to graduate and you're like, what comes next for me? I think just taking that advice on board and like really taking action on it can make a really big difference. Yeah, so can you now go on to talk about your time at NEC? and what this, what this Sistema Fellows Program is and what your experience was on it? So the New England Conservatory Sistema Fellows Program ran for five years, mm -hmm. starting in 2009. Mm -hmm. um, and each year they selected 10 fellows mm -hmm. that, were, that had professional performance training, um, vast majority that were really interested in serving their communities mm -hmm. using music as the vehicle for social change. Mm -hmm. um, and the uh, cohort spent about five months in a crash course on nonprofit management. Uh, we spent two months or so, two, two and a half months in Venezuela, mm -hmm. um, learning about El Sistema firsthand by visiting their nucleos, as they call them, mm -hmm. their music centers all over the country. Um, and then we spent about two months on the road visiting programs throughout the United States. Um, some of that time was kind of more in an internship capacity mm -hmm. where we were um, assigned to a um, El Sistema program for a couple of weeks, or we went to the cities to just be observers um, learn from their teams about how they were operating. Mm -hmm. So by the end of the program, we had you know a pretty clear idea um, in building our program designs, um, building out our budgets, fundraising plans, enough information that we could go back to whatever community we wanted mm -hmm. and to start a program. Yeah. So going into the program, you'd sort of shifted away from this orchestral career pathway and had, did you already have an idea in mind like I want to start a program like this so I'm going to do a pro like this fellows program to prepare me for that so I, I would say I was more fascinated to learn mm. than I was to really run a program initially yeah. but then I mean it only took a couple of weeks for me to start to see like what was possible yeah um, and I remember uh, we took a trip down to Baltimore to spend about a week there mm. and just seeing the kids and the teachers and like hanging out with Marin Alsop and mm. all that like I mean that was pretty inspiring yeah I was re ready to run through a wall yeah so I think at that moment I was like yeah I, I think I can run one of these programs mm. and then after going to Venezuela and seeing all that work firsthand mm. then it was like oh yeah this yeah it. this is it wow um so it's really clear that I was going to spend my 
my career, my entire professional career, mm -hmm. trying to figure this out. Yeah. Um, how to solve inequities in music. Mm -hmm. So how did you then come to think about starting to play on Philly? Why Philadelphia? So it was between Philadelphia and my hometown, Atlanta. Mm -hmm. um, and I also got involved in starting a music program in Kenya. Oh, okay. Um, and this was right after I graduated from Curtis. It wasn't clear if the System of Fellows program would get off the ground. Mm. A friend convinced me to go out there. But I saw the opportunity to come back to Boston um, to take part in the System of Fellows program. I really thought long term that was going to help me out more. Mm -hmm. But then I think that I started to kind of, you know, weigh the possibilities of either being in Philadelphia or Atlanta. Mm. And with my connections through Curtis, uh, a lot more came together mm. in Philly. Um, I met one of the top philanthropists in town, her name's Carol Haas Gravano, mm. and we decided to team up after we met at a conference in Los Angeles. Mm. Um, it was just a weird, like, waiting to cross the street to go back to the hotel from Walt Disney Hall. Wow. And we just started commenting on how great the weather was. <laughs> and we realized we were both from Philly. Um, I was one of the fellows. She was a philanthropist. So mm -hmm. we started the conversation about what we could do together. Mm -hmm. um, and that partnership has remained to this day. Um, and she's been a very, very big help. Um, so that was, it was pretty clear to mm -hmm. me um, by the end of the fellowship that I would return back to Philadelphia mm. and get a program started. Yeah, I think that's really incredible that you met Carol in Los Angeles, like not even in Philadelphia, not in Boston. Both of you were away from home. You just happened to comment about the weather and then it, yeah. just, it just ends up that she becomes the key to what you needed to really get this program off the ground. Yeah, and it's something I, I try not to overlook. The yeah. people that you meet and cross paths with. Yeah. Um, and it only takes a moment to mm. hear their story, to share yours, and also to be vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and it's okay to say, you know, I really want to get this program going or I have this idea of, um, and let people know how they can help. Mm. In that instance, Carol realized as a philanthropist, she could really play a big role yeah. in helping this program come alive. Yeah, and amazing that you sort of took that initiative and that you put yourself out there and that you used those sort of networking skills and yeah, were able to like talk about your ideas in a way that were compelling enough that she was on board with you. Right. Yeah, so I think that's really cool. You just never know who you'll meet and like the difference it can make and the way it can just completely change your life. Right. Amazing. So, you finished up at NEC's Fellows Program, and then you just dove straight into Play on Philly, or how did that work out? Oh yeah, I mean, I probably had three months um, from the time I finished the program mm -hmm. to literally the first day of Play on Philly. Wow. And we were going to welcome 85 kids uh, for uh, three hours every day after school, and I needed 12 teachers, I needed another staff member. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot to build, a lot of instruments to secure. Yeah. Um, and that was a tremendous amount of work yeah. um, to get done in such a short period. I, I really don't recommend to too many people to do that. Yes. But also to keep in mind that I've had an entire year mm -hmm. to plan and to think through yeah. what I wanted to do. So pulling the pieces together that quickly was possible. Mm -hmm. uh, it just was a little stressful yeah. uh, to get across the finish line. But um, uh, So yeah, that came together very quickly. And you know, Carol made a really big investment of $300,000 to get us started. And it's a dream for any nonprofit leader to yeah. start with that type of investment. But then the reality of how are we going to replace that money? Mm. How are we also good stewards of those funds? Mm -hmm. um, so all of those questions kind of came up uh, for us to tackle the first two years, yeah. really, yeah. until things started to kind of come together. Mm -hmm. And if Carol hadn't made that level of investment, I don't think that we could have had such positive outcomes, mm -hmm. even at our very first time. So quickly, yeah. 
Yeah. Could you sort of get into the nitty gritty of like what it took in those first three months to kind of get the program off the ground? So one thing was kind of building a really sound logic model. Hmm. It's this whole idea of what problem are we trying to solve? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's not that like, oh, if we have music education, we're going to save all these children in West Philly. Yeah. Um, So we really had to think about, um, and what I firmly believe, is that a program like Plan on Philly helps kids develop the type of skills and the behaviors they need. So they can go back into the classroom, do well academically, they can go into the community and they can be a, you know, a contributing member of society, they can go home and they can be, you know, really great brother, son, yeah, daughter, like human being. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of the first step of mm-hmm. really understanding what problem we were trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that was really important is to understand programmatically mm-hmm. what we wanted to build. Yeah. Which would then dictate how much space we need in a school, how many teachers we need to hire, how many instruments we need to secure, these types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, assembling the team um, and uh, pulling together the actual like program. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'll never forget, we got a bunch of... Uh, um, music stands mm. and we were sitting there thinking oh wow we forgot to think about chairs oh <laughs> you know, like, everyone yeah. will stand yeah yeah so where are the kids going to sit and I just remember <laughs> we were just giggling it was like three days before the program started uh, and of course there wasn't enough chairs in the school to mm. move from the classrooms and everything we needed uh, so that was kind of a funny thing of like you know a lot of detail yeah um, and then just running the program every day, the systems that we would need uh, to communicate with families mm-hmm. um, and you know, writing grants and things like that. So yeah. there's a tremendous amount of work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we have learned a lot. I'm sure. Um, those first, really, the first couple of weeks and then, of course, the first you know couple of years. Mm-hmm. And that's quite, it's quite an intense program that it's three hours every day after school. Why? Why so much? Oh, very good question. So, I mean, number one, um, it's a really important resource to our families yeah. that need high-quality after-school child, mm. child care, essentially. Mm-hmm. But also the other part is that it gave us enough time to make sure that every day the kids could spend about an hour mm-hmm. in a group lesson learning technique and all of this, that they could spend another hour doing something uh, connected to musical literacy, mm-hmm. Um, and then the third was just learning how to play in an ensemble mm-hmm. with their peers. Yeah. Um, and that just takes a lot of very careful practice. And we were very lucky to be in a situation where we could practice with the kids mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could teach them the etiquette of being in an orchestra and how to function in that environment. And yeah. how to open their ears and hear the pitch and the rhythm of everybody around them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also to think about, um, you know, how, how do I say this? It's like a, um, how the pieces for the teachers and for the staff, um, how they pull together, how do we work best? Mm-hmm. Um, everything from asking our teachers to write lesson plans every week because mm-hmm. we had no idea what a kid should be able to do year two, yeah. week 31, day four. Very specific. Yeah. Uh, but we knew that if we had the teachers write lesson plans every week, mm-hmm. we could, over time, go back and reconstruct how long did it take our, you know, fifth grade clarinet studio to learn all 12 of their scales. Wow. When did they start playing over the break? How yeah. long did that take? And what were the types of, you know, exercises um, or etudes or songs that the kids were playing that helped them? achieve those goals Mm -hmm. and then you know lastly there was a lot of um, the human and financial resources the Mm -hmm. raising money uh, the managing the teachers part yeah um, that was a tremendous amount of uh, work to understand yeah and I'm just curious about like obviously you had this intensive training program um, but before that you had been at Curtis you didn't have a background in business or like you know, being a CEO. So how was that experience for you sort of just taking on a whole nother 
role and putting on this new hat of like, yeah. now I'm executive director, yeah. when you had spent your life sort of training to be a trumpet player. Yeah. So number one is that there were so many examples around me mm -hmm. of former musicians that were, that turned into administrators. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like had the idea that like, hey, if that person can do it, yeah. I think I can do it. You know, that type of thing. That's kind of um, like how you were like with your brother. My brother can do it, yeah, I can do it. I can so do it. it's like yeah. seeing that example. Correct. Yeah. Um, and then the other part to this was that, especially through the System of Fellows program, I got introduced to so many mentors. Mm -hmm. And I figured, hmm, if I take their advice, just like I took my private teacher's advice over these years, yeah. they'll probably give me the right type of mentorship mm -hmm. so that I can run a good organization, then in turn running a good program. Yeah. Um, so really humbling myself to say, there's a lot of stuff I don't know. Yeah. I do think that there is an art, maybe even a science, mm -hmm. to being a really good administrator. Mm -hmm. um, and can I learn those skills? Um, and be able to apply them in the work that I want to do with Plan mm -hmm. So that was like, to me, that was a really, really like good connection to make. Yeah. Um, that really kind of pushed me forward. Yeah, that's really cool. And I think amazing that you sort of saw like these are the areas that I need work in and I need help in, and then you sort of sought out like how can I learn these skills and like how can I teach myself what I need to in order to achieve, you know, what I'm looking to do. Right. So, that's really cool. I'm just wondering about, in the program itself, Play on Philly, you're this executive director, but you're also a musician. How did you sort of balance your, you know, performing past self, maybe current, like, what you were still doing playing-wise, and like, how that fit in with your role as executive director, and like, in the Play on Philly community? So I would say that early on, probably first three, four, maybe five years, I was trying to balance both mm. being a performer and being this administrator for the program. Mm. Um, and in the first two years, it was much easier because I technically just ran a program. Mm. I didn't have to worry about all of the other stuff, running board meetings and, mm. you know, like any crazy fundraising, that type of thing. Mm. Um, but then that changed uh, when we decided to become an independent organization. Mm. And I think I had to make a conscious decision. Was I going to continue to play the role as like the chief educator and the person on the ground every single day? Or was I going to take my skills mm. and be kind of the chief cheerleader, um, mm. the, like the face of the program, uh, the ambassador? Uh, trying to help other people connect to Play on Philly mm -hmm. and everything that we're doing with the kids. Yeah. Um, so when that shift happened, I started to say, there's no way I can keep balancing practicing and like the shape I need to be in physically yeah. to play trumpet and then um, the outcomes that I wanted from Play on Philly. Mm -hmm. And I would say to people, like, understanding that balance is really, really important. Yeah. And if one wants their project or, you know, something to really, really go get off the ground, um, you know, might, there might have to be a very hard question mm -hmm. of, like, how much, like, human resource can you put in? How many hours? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times what I see is that there's not enough hours dedicated to the work of mm -hmm. running a project. Yeah. Um, not even necessarily running an organization. Mm -hmm. um, but I just don't, I typically don't see a lot of that yeah. these days. Yeah. Um, which is fine. How was that shift for you, like, as you sort of gradually are stepping back from your performing? Did you miss it? Like, do you miss it? Do you sort of regret, like, not being able to go down that performance route? That, oh. that was like your dream. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was rough. Mm. It was very rough. I mean, one of my earliest childhood memories was watching Wynton Marsalis and Jazz at Lincoln Center mm. play in Atlanta. I was probably 15 at the time. And after that, like, I knew I wanted to be a professional trumpet player. Yeah. To watch him, like, hold that audience, um, their attention the entire time, tell jokes, mm. be such an authority on jazz. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say that you know, with time, I started to think a little bit less. Mm -hmm. That 
somehow empowering the young people mm. to be on stage performing really kind of replaced the joy that I used to have mm -hmm. being on the stage and making music and being around all that energy. Mm -hmm. um, so these days I actually get much more satisfaction out of seeing our young people get the opportunities yeah. than for me to sit and say like, you know, you know, I miss it so much that I want to go back to it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm reminded all the time, just last night I was at the Philly Orchestra mm -hmm. last night, and because there's an opening for principal trumpet here, mm. a buddy of mine was sitting in and you know playing first trumpet. Wow! And it did make me think for a while, like, oh gosh, if I would have stuck to it. Plus, I used to be better than him <laughs> when we were at interlocking. Yeah. But it was like, you know, yeah, if I would have like really stuck to it, like I could be there on the stage. But yeah, you know, I kind of sat there and I was just like, I'm happy for him. Yeah. You know, I. I have no desire to kind of covet what he has, yeah. you know, in terms of, you know, being in the orchestra. Um, and I just think becoming that confident and sure within yourself is not an easy thing to achieve. Yeah. But very possible. Yeah, and I think it's really beautiful just that you had that sense in yourself. I'm happy for him and like the work I'm doing is important and like I enjoy and get a lot out of the work that I'm doing and I think to just realize you yourself don't have to be the one making the music. To still feel that same, like you're saying, that same joy and that same feelings of accomplishment. Like you're seeing them in the kids that you're impacting all the time. And like you're seeing them accomplishing those things and like that's so rewarding. And so I think that's really cool and really beautiful. But I feel like my experiences in education and community work are very similar. Like I found so much joy in just seeing the kids experiencing what I know I had experienced, you know, and the fact that, like, I can help them, you know, get that same feeling and, like, get that same community feeling and, like, get that performance high and it's really, yeah, an amazing thing to be able to pass it on. So I think that's a really wise and beautiful perspective. And yeah, I'm very, I'm very encouraged and inspired to hear yeah. that from you. So yeah. that's cool. Because I think it's easy to, like, wonder, you know, if you take the other road would I regret it but but it's amazing to hear that you don't yeah so very cool now but you recently just stepped down from your role as executive director um, so can you talk some about what is coming next for you and how you sort of decided to make that yeah that shift that change of stepping down and then starting a new endeavor so last summer, I was talking with a really close friend of mine that went to Curtis with me. He also taught at Play on Philly our first three or four years. And he was like, Stan, like, um, there's this one young woman in our program named Katya who started in first grade. And he was like, Stan, you know that Katya is a senior in high school. Wow. And it, like, it's, uh, it sat with me. Um, and he was like, Stan, I, I think that you've, I think you've done enough. Like, <laughs> it might be time for you to think about what's next mm -hmm. in your life and in your career and pursue it. So that was kind of a moment where I really reflected on, I think this is the time, mm -hmm. um, while the organization is in really great shape, mm -hmm. to find a new leader that can help, um, bring in a lot of new energy for the next decade. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really where I um, started to think about what's next. Mm -hmm. um, and a couple of years ago, several of my colleagues, we started some national conversations around the young people that were interested in becoming a professional classical musician. And knowing that there are a lot of barriers and challenges in their way, could we create something where we could help support those young musicians along their journey to become a professional? Mm -hmm. um, so through that, um, Equity Arc mm -hmm. was born, um, and uh, we are a coalition of organizations that believe that these young musicians can find their place in the future on professional stages. Mm -hmm. And we want to do everything that we can to help support them there. Mm -hmm. So it is still very meaningful work to me, um, and I'm looking forward to what we'll accomplish in the next like several years. Yeah, and that's really cool. I feel like it really sort of brings your story full circle, because 
like we started our whole conversation talking about how you first got into music and how you felt like you had all of these resources and like and how fortunate you were to be able to have those resources and how different that is from other people even in your same community in your same state um, and so now you're like taking active intentional role like an active intentional role in trying to make a difference in providing that for other people and yeah I think that's really really cool I feel like it just brings sort of things full sort of circle for you and yeah sounds like incredibly meaningful and important work so yeah and as we talked about earlier about kind of listening to yourself mm. over the past you know I mean since the pandemic started it really that voice started to become a little bit louder mm. um, and again when my buddy sat me down last summer to say like essentially Stan look at what you've accomplished mm. um, you know I think it is okay to move on and kind of to be given that permission mm. that's when it all started to come back together yeah. for me yeah I really like how you say that giving yourself the permission to to like step back and then like go on a new direction and I feel like that's what you've done at a lot of points in your career when you sort of stepped back and were like I'm not going to go the orchestral route and I'll go down this other route and now again like I think it's so important like giving yourself that permission and like I think as we've talked about it can be so easily like when you're on a certain pathway to just keep going down that pathway yep. and get yep. complacent and yeah but I think so important that you sort of took that time to reflect and take stock and then realize like actually this is the right time for me to go in a new direction so it sounds yeah, yeah amazing yeah and i'll add to it very quickly i think a lot mm. of founder driven organizations there's that extra like you really want to hold on to things mm. um, so i think it's even more important for those that find themselves in a situation of starting something mm. that you know i mean we're really passionate, especially if it becomes really successful, mm. it's really easy to tie the success to the individual. Mm. Um, so it makes it even harder to leave and to yeah. move on and let an organization breathe new life, mm. let somebody's professional career, you know, to pursue some more challenges. Um, and I think I knew after opening up our fifth school, mm. it's like, I don't think I'm the guy to keep opening up school number six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and eleven. Mm. You know, that, that part of it didn't really excite me. Yeah. That's, yeah, I think that's a really important piece. I'm really glad you mentioned it because it feels a little like like a parent, like letting go of their child or like, you know, like Play on Philly was kind of like your baby. You brought it to life. And yeah, the fact that you feel comfortable enough and like confident enough in the organization speaks a lot to the work that it's doing and that you can like, you know, you feel it's in safe hands to leave and now you're off to start another adventures. Yeah. Amazing exactly. to hear. Very yeah. cool. If there was like a last piece of advice you could give to someone, I feel like these juncture points have been really powerful for you and like meaningful for you. If there was like a piece of advice for people who feel like they're in that moment, either like about to graduate or like, you know, at a sort of career shift or change, like what would you say to them? Wow. Um, I think a lot about what it means to add value into the lives of other people. Mm and to concentrate on that. Mm. Um, of course, one needs to have a network of people around them to be able to do that. Um, but I think in such a challenged world, um, I think the arts are, and specifically music, is so much more important these days. Mm. Um, and to think about, um, instead of thinking about me, 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 or you know the individual, and this is like all the great work that I've done to get to this point, to really you know, ask yourself and the people around you, what can I do to make things better? Yeah, amazing. So. Yeah, I think that's an amazing point to end on and so important. I thought it would be fun just to finish off the interview with like a little rapid fire question section. So just okay. the first thing that comes to your mind doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be that like this is forever, this can just be in this moment right now, okay. what you're thinking. Okay. So, who is your favorite composer? Uh, these days, Rachmaninoff. These days, Rachmaninoff. Yeah. Always a good answer. Your favorite piece of classical music? Um, 
I'd say Shashakovich's 11th Symphony and mm. Mahler's 9th Symphony. Oh, two yeah, classics. Those are, yeah. Doesn't get much better than that. Yeah. Uh, how about your favorite movie soundtrack? Oh, Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park. As, as a little kid, like those brass parts, the trumpet parts, I mean. So good. Yeah. Such a memorable, like, line. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very good. Um, what genre of music would you say you listen to most of the time? Mostly classical with jazz in a very close second place. Mm. That's interesting because that's like what you do. So you know you don't feel like it's ever too much. Mm. No. no, but I try to listen to the stuff the kids listen to. Yeah. They just stay and I'm like, I can't believe they're listening to this garbage. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like, Give me the good stuff. Yeah, it's like there's no way they know what all this stuff means. So, <laughs> anyway. I gotcha. Um, what are you currently reading? Um, I'm currently reading a book about quitting. It's called mm. Quit. Uh, I'm blanking on the name of the author. Um, I'll look it up, no worries. But it's um, uh, a really, really great book just about like when, when it is time to move on, what those signals are. So mm. when I'm talking about those little small voices, yeah. it's been a very interesting read mm. to hear how people have been processing. Yeah, and sounds very relevant. I'll definitely link it in the notes because I think you know, especially given what we've been talking about, maybe it'll be meaningful for a lot of other people as well. Okay. Cool. Um, what was the last thing you listened to? Oh, um, I've been listening to Michelle Can's album Revival. Revival. She's a, a brilliant pianist, but she has brought to life a lot of music uh, by uh, black female composers mm. that have been overlooked. Um, so it's just fantastic playing, they're fantastic pieces I think everybody should know. Amazing. I will have to look that one up and give it a listen. Um, who's a musician you really admire? Oh, um, my, my, my parents. Yeah. Aww. I mean, they have, oh gosh, I mean, they've helped me, my siblings, I mean, so, uh, countless numbers of musicians, mm -hmm. wonderful, wonderful people. Yeah. Um, uh, I like them much more now that I'm, I'm grown and <laughs> on the other side. But, um, but no, they they set me up really, really well. I'm That's glad. really sweet. Yeah. I love that. And like, how cool that you like have those memories and like grew up in an, an environment like that. That it could be like a fun family thing. I think that's really special. Do they still play? Um, yeah, my dad play practices every day. Wow. And my mom plays flute and piano uh, whenever she feels uh -huh. like it, but. Uh, not nearly as much as my dad. He, yeah. He's convinced the day he stops playing is the day he starts dying. Wow. So I'm like, okay. No yeah. time soon. Yeah, play Aww. seven hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, and if there was one sort of resource you could recommend, like a book, a movie, a podcast, a piece, uh, just something that you feel like someone really would benefit from this and they should go check it out right now. Well, your podcast. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> nice plug. <laughs> yeah, I think you should listen to everything um, on repeat. Um, and I would say uh, a good friend of mine, Garrett McQueen, his podcast, mm. Triloquy, is amazing. Mm. I've also been trying to challenge myself a little bit by listening to podcasts kind of outside of music and art. So Malcolm Gladwell mm. is one of my favorite um, podcasters. He's also written a handful of really great books as well that I recommend. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for yeah coming and being so open and willing to share your story. I just wanted to say, just to end, like you've been so generous in your time and just your ability to like share yourself with other people. I think is incredible, and I'm so grateful for it. I've really benefited benefited from it. I think even just when I first connected with you and how you were so open and willing to just meet up with me. I remember there was a time in London I was doing a music project. I had no idea what we were doing with the kids and so I just emailed you a bunch of questions and you were so readily available to answer them and help me out. So yeah, really, really appreciate all of the time and all of the valuable advice that you've been sharing. I think a lot of people can get so much out of everything you've had to share. So thank you so much. And if there's just anywhere that people can connect with you or like learn more about you and the work that you're doing, um, yeah, could you just share that really well, fast? Yeah, um, people can check out my personal website at stanfordthompson.com. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the work through equityarc, mm -hmm. A-R-C, uh, dot org. Great. And I'll make sure to link to all of that. Thank you so much, Stan, and excited to see what comes next for you. Awesome. Thanks for having me.
Thank you for tuning in to this first episode of the Orchestrating Your Career podcast, and a big thanks to Stan for sharing his story. I really hope you got as much value and enjoyment out of it as I did. The resources mentioned in this episode, as well as Stan's website and where you can find him, are all linked below. You can find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms, as well as get more frequent updates on Instagram. To watch videos of all the episodes and get extra behind-the-scenes content, check out the YouTube channel Orchestrating Your Career, subscribe so you don't miss anything, and look out for new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. Next episode's conversation will be with Emily Tsai, Assistant Principal Oboe of the Washington National Opera, Oboe Professor at the University of Maryland School of Music, and member of the Woodwind Quintet, Winsink. Until next time, I'll let Stan's trumpet performance end the episode, so take it away, Stan.